Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, what does the Congressional Budget Office do? My guest is Professor Philip Joyce. He is the Senior Associate Dean at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, where he also is a professor of public policy. There, Philip Joyce teaches and researches public budgeting, performance measurement, and intergovernmental relations. He is the author of many publications, far too many to recite, but I will mention one that is germane to today's podcast. Phil is the author of the book, The Congressional Budget Office, Honest Numbers, Power, and Policymaking, which makes him an ideal guest to answer the question, what does the Congressional Budget Office do? Professor Joyce, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you. Let's start simply. The Congressional Budget Office, aka CBO, when did Congress create it and why? So CBO was created in 1974. In 1974, you have to sort of go back in time if you can. Well, probably a lot of people can't go back that far in time that are listening to this podcast, but I can. As you recall, 1974, at least early 1974, Richard Nixon was president. And there was something that became referred to as the imperial presidency. And it essentially involved President Nixon being viewed, at least by many people in the Congress, as sort of of overstepping his bounds, you know, doing things like uh, withholding funds that the Congress had appropriated. And so the Congress was trying to sort of reassert its role in the budget process. And it did this by passing something called the Congressional Budget and Empowerment Control Act of 1974, which did basically three things. It created the budget committees. They created the budget resolution, which is the sort of blueprint that the that the Congress establishes for the budget. And it created CBO. Why did it create CBO? It created CBO in particular to provide the Congress with its own source of information on the budget and the economy. And, and you know, why did it need to do that? Because the alternative was to rely on the Office of Management and Budget, which was, you know, attached to the president and not just any president, but Richard Nixon. So the idea that the Congress was going to sort of reassert its role in budgeting, but have to rely on Richard Nixon's OMB for information just didn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people um, in the Congress. And the other thing, you know, I think it's important important to note up front is that according to the law, this was all to be done on a nonpartisan basis, which means that CBO doesn't work for the party in control of the Congress. It works for the Congress as a whole and tries very hard to make sure that it is responsive to to both political parties. Yes, I should uh, elaborate a touch further for listeners who are not familiar with this period of time, the early 70s, when Congress, after being pushed around and eclipsed by a burgeoning executive branch, one that often didn't play straight and sometimes transcended the law in its activities, 
Uh, Congress decided to reassert itself. It took the Legislative Reference Service and beefed it up into the Congressional Research Service. They created the Office of Technology Assessment. It wrote a new law uh, on budgeting, and of course, it created Congressional Budget Office, all as part of a means for it to reassert itself as the first branch. Now, you started to mention uh, the nature of the agency as nonpartisan, which leads to the next question. The people who work at CBO, are they civil servants or political appointees, or do you have some of both? Well, this is really an interesting question because they are not technically civil servants. That That is, they they are not. And in fact, this makes them different from the employees, uh, many of the employees of the Government Accountability Office who are actually uh, federal civil servants. The way I sort of describe CBO staff is that CBO staff are to the CBO director as congressional staff are to a member of Congress or a congressional committee. That is, the director of CBO is actually appointed by the by the Congress. The director of CBO has the power to sort of hire and fire all CBO staff. So theoretically, a new director of CBO could come in and sort of wipe out the whole place and start over. Now, nobody has ever done that because it's not in their interest to do that because you'd be you'd be losing a lot of institutional knowledge uh, in order in order to do that. But you know, but the fact is, um, you, you know, they are not. Technically, civil servants, they have their sort of own, you know, personnel system, but they very much behave as uh, nonpartisan civil servants would behave. You know, so I, I would say in that sense, you can think of them as being the equivalent of civil servants, but they're not sort of technically civil servants. Now, you know, in terms of of sort of where they come from. You know, it kind of depends on where you look in in CBO, right? It, I think there is a there is a uh, an impression that CBO must be sort of chock full of economists, and that there's nobody else but economists in CBO. But that's not really true. It depends on sort of where you look in CBO. The directors of CBO, there have been ten of them, have almost exclusively been uh, economists. Many of the people in CBO's policy divisions, these are divisions that are organized around long-term economic and budget issues, are PhD economists. But on the other hand, the budget analysis division, and we'll talk more, uh, I think, in a, in a little while about sort of what they do, which is the largest in CBO, and it's the main division supporting the annual budget process, that's mostly made up of staff who have master's degrees in fields like public policy or public administration, or sometimes are people that have significant experience in the executive branch and then sort of move to CBO. So just to paint a contrast for our listeners, when you think about the individuals whose staff say an individual member of the House of Representatives personal office, right? those are folks who frequently get their jobs because they are members of the political party right. and they are individuals who worked on that member's campaign or perhaps worked in other congressional offices frequently for a member of the same party. So their skill sets are much more in the political realm. Right. DBO, that's not the basis for hiring people there, whether you are good at politics, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, not only that, it you know, it's probably a detriment uh, if you're really good at politics, or I would say, to put it differently, if you have a sort of strong political bent, you know, CBO is not the place, you know, to go if you're really a policy advocate, you know, because, you know, you're not really there to advocate policy, you're really there to sort of 
think about objectively about what the effects of policy are. Uh, and as you know, uh, I wrote a book on CBO and, you know, one of the interesting things that I sort of found was that early on when Alice Riblin, who was the first director, you know, who is a giant of public service, um, was setting the place up. And I think the way the place behaves today is very much sort of still in her image. Um, and they had to make a decision early on. <clears throat> were they going to accept um, references from members of Congress for CBO staff. You know, were they, were they going to accept, you know, members of Congress basically saying there's this great guy in my district or this great woman in my district? You know, I think you should hire them. And they decided that they weren't going to, they were not going to refuse to accept those, but they also were not going to be sort of driven by them. They wanted to communicate very clearly to the Congress that they got to decide you know, who worked at CBO based on merit and qualifications, not based on whether they happen to be attached to some important member of Congress or not. Yeah. And I think that was a really prescient, smart insight uh, by Alice Rivlin, um, because ultimately CBO is funded by Congress. And if the impression spreads in Congress that it's basically a tool of the majority, well, that in pretty much throws into doubt anything that CBO publishes and invites retribution. And I should add as a little footnote, in the early 1990s, there was an accusation leveled at the Government Accountability Office, uh, then General Accounting Office, that it was too close to the majority. Right. Uh, and the majority had long been Democrats. And when Republicans took the majority in 1994, GAO suffered a 25% budget cut. So again, that was a very smart, foresighted move by Alice Rivlin. Now, let's get down to the nitty gritty. How does CBO interface with Congress in the budget process? What is its role or roles? Well, I would say that there are, there are sort of three main things I would kind of point to. The first is that twice a year, CBO does a baseline economic and budget forecast. And, and what is that? It's a, it's a projection of what would happen if you let current laws continue. It's basically trying to give the Congress an idea of like, of where they are starting from, you know, before they begin to make policy in a given Congress, what would happen if you did nothing? Or what would happen if you just sort of let current laws um, continue? That usually goes out. 10 years. And, and it's based on an independent economic forecast that is done by, by CBO. So, you know, again, CBO is not going to just rely on the economic forecast that's coming out of a given administration because that, you know, that administration often has an incentive to say that whatever policies they're going to pursue, pursue are going to make the economy much better. And that's not really, you know, CBO's job. CBO's job is to basically say, okay. And what they tend to do is they tend to sort of gravitate toward the average of, you know, what private sector economists would say is going to happen, you know, sort of without regard to saying, that the president's policies are going to are going to make things much better. And then once a year, actually, as a part of that, as a part of that sort of general role, once a year, they do a long term. And, and when I say long term, I mean, 30 to 40 year uh, budget projection. And that's important given the continued imbalance of revenues and spending. And given the fact that over time, that's likely to get worse. For example, the latest one of these showed the deficit growing to more than 200% of GDP by 2040. Now, that is not a prediction that that 
that is going to happen. That is simply a projection that if you didn't do anything, then, you know, this is what we see as the future. And then it is up to the Congress to decide, do they want to do anything or not? For better or worse, the answer is often no. But what they are doing is, uh, you know, is they're taking that CBO analysis as a starting point. The second sort of big thing that CBO does is it does policy analyses of particular policies that are of long run interest to the Congress. So you can imagine, for example, something like, uh, well, what would happen if we went to a single payer health system or what is the sort of future trajectory of the uh, defense budget in terms of military preparedness? And they're answering questions like, what is the effect of those things on the budget and the economy? Another good example is climate change, right? And, you know, you sort of take climate change and you say, okay, based on what people say is going to happen or is likely to happen in climate change, what does that mean in terms of the sort of future for the budget and the economy. And then finally, and I'm leaving this for last, but I think it's probably the most important one, and it's the one that sort of gets the most attention, is that CBO is required by law to do cost estimates of every bill that is reported out of a congressional committee. It does not do cost estimates of every bill that is introduced because that is way too much work. And as you know, you know, most of those bills don't go anywhere. But the point is that once a bill actually has enough traction that it has actually come out of a committee, the idea is that before the House or the Senate would vote on such a bill on the floor of the House or the Senate, they ought to know how much uh, someone thinks it's going to cost. And that someone is CBO. And, you know, before CBO, uh, it's not that there weren't any cost estimates. It's that there weren't any objective cost estimates, you know, that that, uh, you know, a committee that reported a bill out that thought that that bill was the greatest thing since sliced bread would have every incentive to downplay the cost of that bill. And, you know, if you looked at the cost estimates coming out of the administration, lo and behold, if the administration liked an idea, it said the cost was low. And if it didn't like an idea, it said the cost was high. So the idea of having CBO do this is to have somebody that has no real dog in that fight giving some kind of an objective estimate of, of what the bill would cost. Yeah. And speaking of CBO's uh, scoring of bills, it's uh, sometimes controversial. For example, there's a bill that was scored recently, a purportedly postal reform bill to help the postal services finances. And uh, there are folks you know, carping at the calculations there, what the score is. Why is it that CBO scores are sometimes controversial? And as a follow-up, has the method, whatever that is, for scoring, has it evolved over time or is that just written down in formulaic or set in stone somewhere? Well, so, you know, it, it's not that hard to kind of understand why CBO's cost estimates are controversial, which is that people have strong views on these bills and a CBO cost estimate can actually make it harder or easier to pass a bill. Um, and, you know, people complain about the CBO cost estimates. I sort of equate it to, you know, a batter who strikes out who decides to blame the umpire. You know, I mean, you know, the umpire might be wrong, but also, you know, you might have actually taken strike three, you know. And so um, and so I'm you know, I, I think that you have to sort of take with a grain of salt and you have to ask yourself the question, what's the motivation of the people who are criticizing CBO over a particular bill? Now, if they start to get into the specific methodology, there are certainly times when people have a point. 
when they say, look, you know, CBO made the following assumptions and we think these assumptions are wrong and we have sort of data that, you know, backs up why we think that they're wrong. That to me is sort of more credible than just effectively saying, you know, they said this costs money and I don't think it does. You know, well, okay. But if you don't have any evidence, then, you know, then basically you're just saying you didn't like the answer. And CBO cost estimates can be quite influential. When uh, when CBO said, for example, back in 1993, that the Clinton health plan would add to the deficit, when the Clinton administration said that it would cut the deficit, that was viewed as one of the main reasons that the Clinton health plan ended up not going anywhere was because, you know, now the truth is, given the, given the magnitude of, uh, of something like a health care reform, you know, the difference between those two estimates was not actually that great, but it was very important politically that the, that the administration had said this is going to cut the deficit. And then CBO said, no, it's going to add to the deficit. Now, on your question on the methodology, I think the methodology has changed over time in ways that make it more sophisticated. There are there are many more and many better models for projecting spending on things like Social Security, Medicare, farm programs, you know, and the like. And CBO is always looking at, you know, sort of how it can refine its, its estimating strategies. One specific thing that ha- that happened is that since 1995, CBO has actually provided estimates of the cost of legislation on state, local, and tribal governments under the Unfunded Mandates Reform Act. The the, the final thing that I'll mention in terms of CBO's methodology, and, and I don't think this is well understood, is that it, it is as important to CBO to be consistent as it is to be right, in the sense that they don't want to use different assumptions for scoring bills that basically try to do the same thing that are sort of introduced by different people, right? So so they want to make it clear what their assumptions are, and then they want to make sure that when they are scoring bills, all bills that would affect, you know, health care, for example, that they're using a common set of assumptions so that they are not disadvantaging one bill versus another simply because they're using different assumptions. Right. I've also heard from congressional staff that I've worked with, CBO scores can be doubted just because they can be difficult to understand. Mm. You know, a score on a particular bill may only be two pages and it has a whole bunch of numbers, but where those numbers came from is not immediately clear. But the other reason is that, you know, if it's a piece of legislation dealing with mandatory spending, it can have consequences for the probability of whether the legislation can make it through the House and the Senate. It's not right, just, right. oh, there's a bit of red ink attached to this proposal. It actually triggers parliamentary hurdles mm, right, right. of sorts. Is that correct? Yes, it is correct. I mean, you know, one of the things that that CBO cost estimates do is that they can trigger, for example, uh, in certain cases, and it's probably too arcane to go into all the specifics, but but I think it's important to note that you know there are points of order that can be raised in both the House and the Senate that are triggered by the fact that a CBO cost estimate might cause a provision, for example, of the budget resolution to sort of be exceeded. So it you know so it really is true that the Congress in many cases, for either political or procedural reasons, is trying to hit a particular target. And if it and if it misses that target even by a little bit, according to the CBO cost estimate, that can cause the bill to to have to at, at a minimum sort of go back and be redone. And that, of course, unfortunately, would pull this 
third party umpire type figure, the CBO, into controversies because it's viewed because of these parliamentary procedures that it's the CBO's fault that the bill is going to face a, a higher climb through the legislature. All right. One last question. CBO has been around for about 50 years. Does it need any alterations or updates? Well, I would answer this question by talking. I think it's it's kind of useful to talk about a couple of things that CBO has been criticized for. First, there are some people, and I think this is sort of implied by the end of your last question, who think that CBO is not very transparent about how it does its estimates. You know, now I think CBO is probably more transparent than a lot of people think that it is, but CBO has actually spent a lot more time and effort over, I would say, the last 10 years trying to be more transparent about its um, cost estimates, the methodology that sort of goes into its cost estimates and publishing kind of separate reports that say, you know, this is how we go about doing estimates, for example, healthcare uh, programs. So I think that's a place where CBO is continuing to, you know, to sort of work. The second criticism is that CBO pays too much attention to costs and not enough to benefits. You know, that is, it can tell you how much it would cost to add some kind of coverage to Medicare, but it doesn't pay a lot of attention to how many lives it would save. And that, and the answer is that that is true, but it's because that's what CBOs has been asked to do under the law is to provide an estimate of costs to the federal government, not an estimate of overall societal costs and benefits. You know, so I think that, you know, you have to sort of ask yourself not only, you know, what could CBO do differently, but how could the Congress behave differently with respect to how it uses CBO's estimates? I think it ought to understand that when it asks CBO for an estimate of costs to the federal government, that is not the whole answer. That is, and that is one input into the congressional process. And if, in fact, uh, the Congress wants to say, we think the benefits of this legislation are so great that we are willing to expend these costs, then it's the Congress's decision to do that. It is not CBO's decision to do that. So I really think it's much more sort of, you know, I think CBO has actually done quite a good job of what it is tasked to do. But I think the question then becomes, you know, to what extent does Congress, in a sense, pay too much attention at some times, you know, to that that sort of simple measure of costs to the federal government and not enough attention to sort of other factors. All right. Professor Philip Joyce, author of the book, The Congressional Budget Office, Honest Numbers, Power and Policymaking. Thank you for teaching us about CBO and its work. Well, it was a pleasure to be with you, Kevin. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Elaine Allen and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. We hope you have a great day. Thank you.